Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Once voted the best ever opening lines for a novel. Here's the full quote from Charles Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. How, I wonder, can you have all of those extremes at once? best and worst, wisdom and foolishness, light and dark. That is a tone that captures almost perfectly, I think, the events unfolding in the passage we just heard from John's Gospel. Now, it is an account of the life of Jesus. We've been following it through here at Scots for the last few months, John's Gospel, to the point where we have come this morning to something of a climax, of a turning point, which then launches us into the final phase of the book. It's a turning point that raises some mind-bending questions, whether you're someone who's a follower of Jesus or just an interested bystander. Like, why does he let it happen if he's so powerful? I'm talking about his betrayal by Judas, his disciple, who he shares bread with at the table. In fact, who he treats as the most honoured guest, as he personally serves him. Why, if Jesus knows so much, did he even choose Judas in the beginning? And why, given that he seems to know what's about to happen, why doesn't he try to stop it? instead of keeping it quiet and sending Judas off with a hurry on? Now, they're big questions. I've got a couple of bigger ones, but I'll save them for the end. For now, I just want you to notice the strange kind of tension in the way John tells the story a strange kind of interplay between the the positive and the negative, between celebration and threat. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Because notice from the outset, Jesus does know exactly what's happening. And it actually fills him with dread. It troubles him in spirit, says verse 21 which prompted one Bible commentator I read to say that if you're someone who ever feels anxiety yourself, if you know what it's like to be troubled in your spirit, Jesus has been there too, which you might take as some kind of comfort. He's troubled because he knows, as he just said at the dinner party, that one of them at the table is going to betray him to the authorities, which is again a tension if you've been here for the last little while, we've seen building up through the last few chapters. Jesus, 
who unsettles the religious status quo, Jesus, who is drawing such a following, the religious leaders have been looking for their chance to arrest him without causing a riot. And now you see they've got inside help. And Jesus knows it. And so obliquely, he announces it to his inner circle. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Quoting from Psalm 41, which we'll circle back to in a moment. He puts it even clearer by the time you get to verse 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so the murmur goes around. Who does he mean? Peter nudges John, sitting next to Jesus. Ask him who. And Jesus says, just watch. He says, let me act out the psalm for you. He who eats my bread, he's the one who's going to act against me. Friends, this is the worst of times. Jesus breaks off a piece of bread. He dips it in the sauce. He hands it tenderly to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who takes it. And as he does, we're told, Satan enters into him. Now, I'm not sure there'd actually be anything to see at that point if you'd been there, except maybe a slight firming of his resolve. If Judas was in any way undecided before, if Judas was in any doubt before, this is the moment. Somehow resentful of what Jesus is doing, resentful of how he's been doing it perhaps. Interesting, the surname Iscariot, it's often suggested, is derived from the Greek term sicario, which means dagger man. And the thought is, maybe Judas is from a whole family line of revolutionary fighters. So disappointed, perhaps, that Jesus isn't the revolutionary he thought. All anyone can do is is guess at the motives behind the biggest betrayal in history. Now, this is still low-key. John and Peter know, but it seems word hasn't really got around, the one he gives bread to. And as soon as he's taken it, Jesus says to Judas, go now and do what you're going to do. Do it quickly. As you can see from the reading, there's a general misunderstanding. See, of course, Judas doesn't look any different to the rest of them. He's not any uglier, he's not any meaner. Not the stereotypical dark, furtive looks of a betrayer. They just think Jesus is sending him to get supplies for the Passover feast. Or maybe to to give an annual donation to the poor. Both of which, in, in John's impeccable sense of irony, is in a sense exactly what is going to unfold in a very different way. Nobody knows. As Judas goes into the night. Now again, just to note 
we're dealing with a kind of narrative artistry here from John. I was reading a, a David Baldacci novel the other day, as you do, high literature, high culture. Uh, here's a quote. He turned and walked out into the gathering storm. It was not nearly as intense as the one going on inside his head. Now, you see, that's artistic, isn't it? You want to go, I see what you did there, David. Storm outside, storm inside. Artistic. Now, you see, same here. Judas turns and walks into the darkness, which is not nearly as intense as the darkness going on in his heart. As an author, John has been planting this seed of an idea right from chapter 1, that in Jesus, light has come. But the world, he says, prefers the darkness. That is what Judas steps out the door and plunges into, both literally and metaphorically. Or to quote some Dickens again, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. Spring of hope, the winter of despair. So here we are in the darkness. And the winter of despair, which is about to set in around them. Here's the curious thing. Because the very next sentence, as Judas steps out the door, Jesus seems astonishingly upbeat. With the worst of times, it seems, dawns the best of times as well. With his betrayal now underway, the only thing that Jesus can set out ahead is, well, look at his words. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, I've got to confess, my own moments of sporting glory have been very, very limited. I can only imagine what it would be like to win a race or, or hit the winning runs. Sporting glory and me were never really meant for each other. But I guess in my dreams there'd be cheering, there'd be an adoring crowd on their feet chanting my name. There'd maybe be champagne and a huge trophy. Or America's Got Talent. Have you ever seen it when they hit the golden buzzer? Streamers, glitter, wild cheering. That's glory, isn't it? Jesus looks ahead and sees astonishingly glory, that he himself is going to be glorified, that God his Father is going to be glorified in what he does, that there's going to be glory all around, even though he knows full well that what lies ahead is crucifixion, that what lies ahead is his own life given in sacrifice, that what lies ahead is himself as the Passover lamb filling out the Jewish tradition that the blood of an innocent lamb is shed 
in a way that steers away the judgment of God from others. That the punishment falls on the firstborn lamb and not on the ones taking refuge. Glory somehow in the bloodiness of that and what lies beyond. Now, he says, is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. That from the worst of times will somehow come the best of times. Which, interestingly, did you notice, was hinted at in the psalm that Jesus already quoted. I said a few minutes ago we'd come back to that Old Testament psalm. It was written by King David when he was surrounded by enemies calling for his blood. They were originally David's words about betrayal, friends who shared his bread turning against him. And Jesus is saying what ancient King David said about his situation is equally true of mine. Which means implicitly, so is the next bit. I wonder, did you notice David's words in the psalm, my friends have betrayed me. They say I'm a dead man walking. But here's David's confidence, David's prayer. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. See, I suspect that Jesus has got more than just an inkling that no matter what's going to unfold at his crucifixion, that will not be the last word. That no matter how hard the darkness tries to extinguish the light, it will not overcome it. No matter how hard the hate tries to embitter the love, no matter how hard the evil tries to shout down the good, it's not going to happen. And look again, just a little payoff for anyone who's been reading along in our John's Gospel project from the start. Here is how John himself hinted at that right from the beginning. We we go right back to chapter 1 and he says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Which brings us, I think, to the even bigger questions than the questions I started with this morning. And that comes in the definitive commandment that Jesus gives to the 11 disciples who have been left behind after Judas goes out into the darkness. They're famous words that when I was a teenager back in the hippie folk song Christian youth group kind of days, I were turned into the lyrics of a popular song. I can still remember the chords. Play it for you on my guitar later if you like. I suspect that, uh, you know, quite a few of you, if you had any church in your teenage years, will be humming along as well. A new commandment 
I give unto you. Not that when you find Judas has gone to betray, you grab him and beat him to a pulp. Not that you get even. Not that you rise up and fight back. But that you love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I said at the start, this passage raises some interesting questions. I reckon this might be the biggest one. Can you actually command someone to love? Interesting concept, isn't it? Especially these days when the half is apparently in charge of everything and love is love and you just have no choice who you're going to love and equally, I guess, no choice at all about who you're not going to love. If love is hate, if love is love, sorry, surely hate is hate. Surely not something you can just command people to do. Especially if it involves loving the unlovely, which some of us are. Loving the sick, loving the frail, loving the failures, loving the poor. How can Jesus say it is a commandment to love one another when the reality is my emotions are the boss of everything? Or that's how it seems most days. Well, that's what we're told culturally, isn't it? You be you. Do what you feel. Friends, it is a curiously Christian thing that Jesus replaces all the laws and rules of Israel, all the rules and regulations with just this one. And yet it's so incredibly challenging because it goes to the issue of our hearts rather than just our behaviours. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And there's more. There's a model attached that when you watch how the story is unfolding makes the challenge even bigger. Just as I have loved you, to love one another. Just as I have loved you by stepping up to die a death I don't deserve, to pay a debt I did not owe, to take on myself the weight of the sins of the world, he says, love like that. In other words, love not just as a sentimental feeling, but love that looks like giving up our lives for one another setting aside our comforts for one another, giving up our preferences for one another, serving when we would so much rather be served. And friends, to be honest, when you look at the track record of Christianity, the results are mixed, aren't they? 
There's another 1970s Christian folk song in my mind which said, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Which again draws from exactly these same words of Jesus. And look, I don't blame you. If you're visiting today, maybe, Open House Melbourne, if you're thinking today, well, if Jesus has been watching the news lately, he must be pretty disappointed. Let alone if he's actually been part of a church that's been divided over petty squabbles or experienced the traumatic damage of child abuse. During the week we advertised our Open House Weekend on Facebook and there were 67 comments, almost all of them negative. Here's one, it should come up on the screen, from Pete LB. Churches and religion, the cause of all wars, hate, greed, segregation, etc., through the eons. Churches, corporations of greed, scaremongering scammers. Furious, you see, that a church would advertise open house on Facebook. But I mean, it seems he's got a point, about religion at least, about the drift that has happened since the time of Jesus himself. Not that there aren't significant high points in church history, positives, but there's enough data out there to say Pete LB has got a point. So friends, let me take you urgently back to the words of Jesus. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I don't know, maybe in a sense it's a definition. Maybe the issue is that just because people through history and even today say they are disciples of Jesus, maybe if you're not seeing any love there, especially love for one another, maybe it's just hot air and they're not disciples of Jesus at all. Maybe you can take the flip side of it and say, by this, all people will know that you are not really my disciples if you have no love for one another. Because disciples, you see, friends, after all, are meant to be learners and learners are meant to be imitators. Especially given that Christianity has got more in common with a trade, perhaps, than just an academic profession that's all theory. Here's a dreadful thought, by the way. I saw an ad the other day that said you can get a cheap tattoo if you let the apprentice do it. Now, there's a case of learning by doing and getting what you pay for. I guess tattoo artists have got to start somewhere. You can only learn by doing it not theory, which is like being a disciple of Jesus. And from what he's saying, the thing we're meant to learn from his example of sacrifice is to see that is what real love looks like and do it. Not just an emotion when you feel like it, but putting personal preferences aside in sacrificially serving the people around you, especially 
in this new community Jesus is forging, starting with those remaining 11, loving one another. Although just as we finish, yet another hint that it's going to be a road of disappointments. Simon Peter pipes up in verse 36 and says, you've got it all wrong. No matter where you're going, Jesus, I'm coming with you. I will lay down my life for you. (laughs) Says the guy who, when the going gets tough in a few pages' time, will play out exactly what Jesus says he will do. I'm sure Jesus says these words with a wistful smile. You see, it is Jesus who's going to be laying his life down for Peter and the rest of us. As Peter slips away just a few days later, saying three times, no, I didn't even know him. Friends, this is a hard road. It really is the best of roads and the worst of roads. We really are called to a path following these astonishing claims that almost beggar belief. A path of astonishing cost, of self-sacrificial love. And so often we as disciples of Jesus have failed, have doubted, have denied, have chosen an easier path instead. Although we are going to see in the next chapter or so Jesus has always promised to keep reworking our hearts to change us in the right directions. And if you do know anyone on that pathway of learning to follow Jesus, maybe you have actually seen evidence of self-sacrificial love at work. I know I have here in the Scots Church community, people who serve and who care and who give and who pick up the phone to make sure you're okay, who visit the sick, who week by week feed the hungry at our Flemington mission because together, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we are committed to loving well. And we'll keep stumbling at that. Sometimes, like Peter, by our very words and actions, we'll let his reputation down. And yet, We will keep getting up and hearing that commandment one more time. Loving again. You've been listening to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church Melbourne.